Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I know one airline CEO who's sleeping a little better at night this week. Robert Isom, the American CEO, got a deal from his union leadership as they agreed to a tentative new contract right before a potential summer slowdown. You live in Dallas, Scott McCartney. You and other American frequent fires are probably sleeping a little better too. I certainly am, Ben, especially since I had already been delayed on a couple of flights by pilots who clearly were not in a hurry to get anywhere. That's a sign that negotiators were close to a deal, and they were. We'll talk more about that, and we'll air our onstage discussion with Spirit Airlines CEO Ted Christie for all of our listeners who weren't able to join us in Miami Beach for Aviation Festival Americas. It was a great show and a really fun and insightful discussion with Ted. And a real treat, Ben, for all of us to hear you two reminisce, interact, and tell stories. The crowd in Miami seemed to really love it, and they were very sorry you couldn't make it there in person, but having you on screen was just as good and plenty effective when quizzing Ted. Well, thanks, Scott. I was very sorry I couldn't be on stage with you in person, but I thought our TED Talk worked out great. Listeners will enjoy it, though I was disappointed to hear that he no longer empties his own trash can at Spirit. I joked with him that that was a pathway to becoming a legacy airline. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Spirit has certainly matured. So, Ben, the American Airlines tentative pilot deal is front-loaded to catch up to Delta's pay rates. Americans' pilots would get an average 21% pay increase this year, according to news reports after the Friday announcement. And then they'd get 5% in the second year and 4% in each of the third and fourth years. In the year the contract becomes amendable, there will be a 3% raise. Last year, pilots turned down an offer that had a 19% jump over two years. This amounts to 26% over the first two years. Americans said the deal includes changes in scheduling for pilots. The company didn't say how much all this will cost, but it did say pay rates will be comparable to Delta. According to Reuters, American did say previously that matching Delta's deal would cost American $8 billion over four years. In 2019, before the pandemic, American Airlines Group earned $1.7 billion. In 2018, it was $1.4 billion. In only three of the last 10 years has the company earned more than $2 billion. And now it will be paying pilots more than $2 billion a year on average compared to the old contract. You got to do what you got to do. And no doubt with the pilot shortage, pilots are in a great bargaining position. 
With what it now costs for training as a commercial pilot, the profession had to get more rewarding. But as you've said, Ben, clearly ticket prices are going to have to go up substantially to pay for these expensive new contracts if big airlines are going to be able to make money. I do think there's going to be a lot of cost pressure pushing ticket prices up because it's not only pilot wages that are going up, that's going to have a ripple effect on other labor rates. And at the same time, you can't predict fuel. Airports aren't getting any cheaper and airline costs are just getting higher and higher. But those high prices invite more low fare competition too. So that's a good thing maybe for the low fare carriers. And if the economy weakens and there's less demand and a lot more empty seats, airlines won't be able to sustain those high ticket prices. The industry no doubt has a lot of challenges ahead. And I think, Scott, that any airline who thinks they're going to recover all of their pilot increase only with revenue increases through tickets is kidding themselves because I don't think the market is going to let the industry fares get that high. I think every airline needs to be looking at things that are going to lower their non-pilot costs at least as some mitigation to this. Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. Well, I think the ball is now in the court of United and Southwest, and we could probably expect them to reach deals with their pilots pretty soon. It's it's getting very clear what the market is set at. Uh, and I would think the unions would be eager to get this settled just in case uh, there might be a recession coming uh, and it might be harder to um, negotiate with management if the economy does soften. I think that's right. And the $2 billion a year, if it is that, or maybe even more, because that was an earlier estimate American made, they mentioned scheduling changes, but they didn't say the costs would be offset somewhat by scheduling changes. That makes me assume that the scheduling rules themselves are going to cost American more money too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. It is front loaded. So they may be able to just have a really bad quarter where they take a charge for uh, the higher pilot costs and and then hope that uh, the, the subsequent quarters uh, aren't as impacted as severely. But it's all going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, and the front loading isn't as surprising to me as the relatively hefty rates in years two, three, and four in the deal. The front loading is really a catch up for the years in negotiations since those pilots got their last deal. So that's not as surprising to me as the rest of the deal. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it may be a reflection that uh, a lot of people expect inflation to continue. Um, if you're four years into the deal and you're getting 4% pay increases, you're probably assuming that uh, inflation may be still running around 4%. Who knows? In other significant news, Ben, 
a federal judge in Boston ruled that the American JetBlue Northeast Alliance violated the Sherman Antitrust Act and couldn't go forward as structured. Judge Leo Sorkin ruled in favor of the Justice Department and six states and the District of Columbia, all of which sued claiming the deal would reduce airline competition. American and JetBlue have already been selling seats on each other's flights in Boston and New York and offering reciprocal frequent flyer benefits to customers. JetBlue got the use of some American takeoff and landing slots at LaGuardia, but significantly, American wasn't selling the slots to JetBlue, only parking them at JetBlue with the hope, presumably, of someday having enough traffic of its own in New York to take back the slots. The judge called the deal a, quote, naked agreement not to compete with one another, quote. Both airlines said they would appeal. Ben, since you're on the JetBlue board, I assume there's not a lot you can say about this. To me, this was all about American weakness in New York and Boston. To think American, once proudly based in New York, was getting so clobbered by Delta primarily, and certainly by JetBlue too, that it had to seek help from JetBlue is really kind of sad. It seems to me it's possible that now that the judge has ruled American and JetBlue may have a bigger incentive to negotiate concessions with the Justice Department and come up with a settlement that Justice would believe would better preserve competition but allow the Northeast Alliance to continue in some form. That settlement might even be a bigger global deal including the JetBlue Spirit merger, which, of course, the Justice Department has also challenged. Bottom line, I think the judge's verdict puts a lot of airline pieces in play again. American and JetBlue have a lot of incentive to do something. American is losing money in New York and Boston, and JetBlue needs to somehow get bigger. They won't give up on improving their situations, so stay tuned. Lawyers and consultants and analysts and executives and board members will all be working hard this summer to figure out something. Well, and if the judge will allow me to, I want to thank Pratt & Whitney, as does Scott, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue from lower costs and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com, that's D-O-H-O-P.com. Duhop and consulting firm Oliver Wyman 
helped make our appearance in Miami Beach at Aviation Festival Americas possible. We are so appreciative because it really was a wonderful and important conversation with Ted Christie. So without further ado, let's learn about low-cost carriers, leadership with laughter, and how all those spirit airplanes ended up canary yellow. As a chairman, I'm pleased to officially kick off day number two. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our first keynote session of the day with Airlines Confidential Podcast Live topic, the LCC model, now and how has the spirit changed and where is it going? The session will be led by Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines. He will be joined by Scott McCarty, co-host and former editor of Wall Street Journal Aviation. The interviewee will be Mr. Ted Christie, CEO of Spirit Airlines. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, Ben. We're sorry you couldn't be here physically. Good morning, Ben. I'm so sorry I couldn't make it live to meet all of you, but I really appreciate technology today and that we could do it this way. That's great. Ted, it is such a pleasure to be on stage with you today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and it couldn't be more timely. Um, there's, there's so much going on in the industry and just such fascinating stuff as we sort of um, rebuild the industry um, post-pandemic. But I want to start by going back because, Ted, you worked for Ben. I think Ben hired you um, at, at Spirit. He did. Um, he did. You were his CFO. Uh, so talk a little bit about your time together. What, what was that time like for Spirit? And, and what was it like working for Ben Baldanza? We're not going to ask Ben what he thought of... Me working. Oh, we'll, um, we'll, we will get to that. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you uh, for having me. It's my pleasure to join you on stage. So it was very nice. Um, and it's great to see Ben. Uh, I joined Spirit 11 years ago. Ben did hire me just after the company went public. Uh, at the time that I joined, we had about 35 airplanes uh, in mm -hmm. the fleet. And I was just commenting, you and I were saying before. Um, Ben and I overlapped about three and a half years, but it felt really much longer than that to me. Um, the what was happening, in a good way, Ben, by the way. <laughs> um, what, was what was happening to us in that period of time was quite substantial and unique, and, um, and the industry was going through radical change coming out of the, uh, the difficult period in the, you know, the great financial crisis and the spike in oil prices that had happened at the latter part of the prior decade, and Spirit had a a very clear vision and, a, and an accelerated runway for growth. And with Ben's leadership amongst all the other leadership team, we were tackling unique challenges, bringing the ULCC model to the United States, which was new at the time, and growing 15 to 30% a year, depending on the year, doing all of that while educating our guests on, on how the model worked and tackling operational issues. And, and, and so it was a ton of fun. And I learned so much during that window of time. That's why I felt like, you know, it was much more substantial than that. I'd be curious if Ben agrees, by the way, because I don't think well, <laughs> I have not talked about that. That period, uh, you were the first to institute baggage fees, right? In yeah, so in the, in the latter part of the prior decade, so it was prior to my arrival, but uh, Spirit was thinking about uh, the problems it was facing or the problems the industry was facing and and addressing those issues in an economic manner rather than in an, um, in other manners. And one of the things that we found was that in the 
uh, and the fallout of the great financial crisis and these um, stratospheric oil prices, um, airlines, in searching for revenue, had introduced bag fees as, as um, commonplace, more commonplace in the industry. And so, not surprisingly, consumers started to act economically, which meant that they were checking fewer bags and bringing a lot more bags on board the airplane. Uh, and so Spirit thought, well, we've got to find a right way to keep fares low, but balance what's happening operationally because all those check or all those carry-on bags were backing up the operation. So they introduced the carry-on bag fee at the latter part of that decade in a way to kind of address that, but keep keep fares low and and make sure we're doing the right thing. And since then, that's now become much more common yeah. in the industry as well. So, yeah. so an interesting so solution to that problem. Yeah. Well, Ted, it's great to see you and so happy that you're here with us today. I remember those times working with you as well as you do, and you were a terrific CFO for Spirit, one of the best hires I ever made in my career, I will say, and I hope that I was a decent boss for you. Um it was a real interesting time. We worked really hard, but we also laughed a lot too. And that made it possible to get through some very difficult times, including issues with labor, issues with the economy, and just the normal tensions that come from really rapid growth. So, Ted, let's talk about the state of low-cost carriers today in the U.S. Spirit and other low-cost carriers fared better than the rest of the industry coming out of the pandemic, largely because leisure demand was the first to come back and is still driving most of the revenue in the industry. Then Russia invaded Ukraine and oil prices went up again. So where do you think the low cost industry is today, Ted? Uh, thanks, Ben. So um, you're right. Leisure has led the way uh, during the recovery. We always knew that would be the case. Um, I think the jury's still out exactly on what's going to happen with corporate demand, whether or not it's uh, plateaued or whether or not it will continue to come back. But what we've witnessed uh, is an interesting dynamic between low-cost airlines and more traditional network airlines or legacy carriers as we've emerged from the, from the, uh, the depths of the pandemic. It appears economically anyways right now the, the legacy airlines are starting to outperform. And I think what we're witnessing is the effects of uh, supply chain backup and, um, and constraint on capacity growth that low-cost carriers still wish to pursue and are actively trying to pursue. And until we can do so and get back to the more efficient delivery of that capacity, which is key for the model, then that's, that's the target to get us back to the economic outperformance that we're all used to. Um, the good news is demand is very strong. Leisure demand has remained resilient over the past year or more once we got out of the Omicron uh, fallout. And, uh, and so for Spirit, what, what we're tackling right now is how do we get back to a more normalized fleet utilization, uh, which will allow us to efficiently deploy the capacity and with our fare structure deliver margins that are more within the expectation of what, uh, what we all would see. So how is Ted's spirit different today 
from Ben's spirit of seven or eight years ago? Um, well, Ben mentioned a couple of things that are uh, still the same. He's right that we did laugh quite a bit uh, <laughs> back in the day, and I'm, I'm proud to say that's still true, Ben, so you, you, you held that over. Um, one thing that I think is key to, to having a good place to work and um, keeping people energized is that you have to have a balance of, of the right amount of effort and enjoyment, and I'm blessed to say that we have that at Spirit. And I've, I've been fortunate to land at a couple of places in my career that, that I didn't think I would be this happy. And, um, and I work with just a great group of people and they really enjoy themselves and we do think about problems that way. And, and so that's remained the same. You know, the things that are different for us, obviously we're significantly larger uh, than we were when, when Ben took over. And the model is more developed, meaning that it's much more commonplace and people are more familiar with it. So the challenges that we were dealing with in the early part of my tenure and while Ben was CEO were about education. It was about getting people familiar with how things were going to work when you had an a la carte model versus a bundled offering. And, and admittedly, during that period of time, that did drive quite a bit of friction uh, between ourselves and our and our guests, because people were not familiar with it, but but what we've done over that period of time, and we all knew it would happen over time, is that people have become more familiar with things, and so the challenges that we faced then are different than the challenges we face now, and so it's easy to look at the spirit of today and say, well, gosh, it looks like you're now skewed towards maybe guest service or you're making people happier. I don't think that's true. I think it's just an evolution of the way we tackled the problem back then and what we're dealing with now. I think that's right, Ted. Looking from the outside in, it seems like all the changes that Spirit has made since I've left are natural evolutions of the model and make a lot of sense to me. What do you think about Breeze and Avello, two carriers that started at a really auspicious time in the overall economy? And what do you see as the long-term impact of sort of low-cost small city service? So there's definitely an opportunity uh, at uh, smaller city uh, service. I think that's been proven over the better part of 15 years by what uh, Allegiant does, uh, for example, is they've, they've done an excellent job at finding those niche markets where they're able to serve smaller origination cities into larger leisure destinations. And it appears that uh, the new startups of late are, are following a similar strategy. And admittedly, their product delivery appears to be different. I think you could argue that uh, one is more of a traditional ULCC construct, and the other has, uh, Breeze has a little bit more product design in theirs that they intend to, but, but at least from a network construction perspective, they're looking at it the same way. And for, for us, we'll continue to deploy the way we have been deploying, which has been a focus on big origination, big destination, mid-sized cities to big destination, and, and Latin America being a big focus of ours. But I think that there is an opportunity in that segment. Clearly, those airlines are looking to pursue it. And, and we've done some as well. I mean, you know, we've, we fly to places like Latrobe and, and smaller, uh, smaller cities as well. So there is some of that in our network. But I would agree that, at least for now, those, those smaller startups are appearing to try to pursue that first. Hmm. So you mentioned Latin America. Since this conference is, is very focused on aviation throughout the Americas, I'm, I'm curious how Latin America is doing for you. 
what trends are you seeing? Um, also curious, there seems to be a lot of change going on, the collapse of, of Viva, um, the growth of JetSmart, Indigo-owned, Bill Frankie-backed. What, um, what's going on south of here? Well, what's been great for Spirit is that we have um, had tremendous success building uh, that franchise uh, over the better part of 15 years. And it's been a mix of traditional leisure destinations, but also visiting friends and relatives, uh, more difficult uh, destinations that you may not anticipate. Uh, an airline like ours would serve Port-au-Prince, Haiti, for example, or Guatemala or San Salvador, um, those types of places where we actually have a notable impact on families. Prior to our arrival into Haiti, for example, the average round-trip fare from South Florida was in the 900 range, and we came in with $59 fares, and the Haitian community responded extremely favorably. Now, during the pandemic, uh, that area of, the, um, of our network suffered. Uh, visiting friends and relatives, Latin American demand was very low. Uh, and I think that was a mix of, of travel restrictions and, you know, the pressures happening with various currencies and, you know, all of those things really weighed on it. But the good news is leisure demand into the traditional leisure destinations remained very good. And now we're seeing the VFR traffic return uh, the way we wanted it to. So we're back, including U.S. territories in the Caribbean, we're now back to about 20% of our network being in Latin America. Uh, from the U.S., we serve more destinations in the, in the country of Colombia than any other U.S. airline. We're now up to seven destinations in Colombia. And so it's a very important part of our network and one that will continue to grow. As the airline gets bigger, it'll probably remain 20% or so of the total airline. Latin America was always a fun part of the airline to grow to because in many cases, Spirit was the first low-cost carrier to serve many of those places. I always found it interesting, Ted, that while some people in the U.S. might complain about seats that didn't recline or having to pay for water on board, we typically didn't get those complaints internationally because they were just so happy to pay a two-digit fare when they were used to paying multiple hundreds of dollars. Totally agree. And, and we still get, you know, I'm on our airline all the time, and I talk with our guests in the cabin, um, and I spend time with, with them listening, and, and while they're always anxious to give me feedback, and sometimes that feedback uh, isn't, isn't always positive, the vast majority of it is. Uh, and so there is a narrative that exists about our model uh, and what it's like to travel on a, on a low-cost airline and, and that sort of thing. But the truth is that people are making decisions with their pocketbook based on the feelings and the expectations that they have for their family going forward. And loyal travelers on Spirit, and we have quite a few of them, uh, routinely come up to me and say, you guys are doing the right thing. I'm saving hundreds of dollars every time I travel to see my family in Florida, or I go between uh, Detroit and Chicago for business, whatever those things might be. And so, yes, uh, smaller communities embrace any kind of new service. They're immediately going to be attracted to the idea of having nonstop service with, as Ben said, double-digit fares, which you know is just amazing to say. But, um, but the model has definitely permeated the U.S. market more than I think we even anticipated back in 2012. Uh, and now it's become part of the vernacular, which has been great to see. 
Well, Ted, speaking of narratives, another one of those is that the spirit customer and the JetBlue customer are completely different. And I think that's bunk, actually. Um, you know, I serve on the board of JetBlue and I see what we carry and I know what we carried at Spirit and what you're carrying now. And the reality is people are just people. You've added Wi-Fi. You've always had the big front seat, pre-check and things like that. In that same time since I've left Spirit, JetBlue has densed up its cabins a bit. They now have a blue basic fare that really matches the Spirit fare and doesn't even allow a carry-on bag. So in a way, they effectively charge for carry-ons like Spirit, even though it's not a separate fee. Do you agree with that idea? My view is that customers are looking for a good deal all the time. hundred uh, percent agree. And I think, um, you know, that because of the pending, the looming transaction with JetBlue, this discussion is coming up about Spirit and JetBlue. But you could say that about Delta and United and American as well. We carry their people too, and they carry some of ours. Uh, people are looking for the best available service for whatever it is they're paying for at that given moment. And Delta customers who may be a Morgan Stanley employee in New York and have a corporate relationship with, and of course Morgan Stanley's foot in the bill, they're going to they're gonna travel on Delta and do whatever they need to do on Delta. But when they want that extra trip to Myrtle Beach to go uh, golfing, or they're looking to go to Atlantic City for the weekend, or they're trying to come to South Florida or to Orlando to take their, their family to Disney and they're paying for it themselves, we carry those people. And so um, I think it's the, the, the segmentation of the product has more to do with when and what people are buying, not the physical people. And it is a supply-demand business. And so that, that really drives pricing and what happens in the marketplace. And so I think you can erase this idea that we only serve a certain number of people because that's simply not true. And, and with that, I, I was actually talking to Barry Biffle yesterday who said something like 18% of their customers now are $200,000 a year or, or higher income. Earners. Uh, he thought some of that was trading down, um, maybe a sign of economic weakness. I'm, I'm curious if you're, you're seeing trade down, or, or is it just familiarity and people looking for good deals and, and wanting to go and a lot of demand for seats? Well, I haven't looked at the demographic data recently, um, so I'm, it sounds like Barry's done some, some newer research, but I can say that broadly speaking, over, over my tenure here, the demographics of an average uh, spirit guests resemble the demographics of an average airline guest. Uh, they generally are, um, you know, dual income, college educated, uh, you know, there's, they tend to be very similar. Um, it gets back to the prior discussion, which is why are you traveling and who's paying for it and what is your intent yeah. that, that drives the decision. Now, uh, what we do is, with lower fares, stimulate activity, and that means the average consumer who hasn't traveled before because they've been driving may be compelled to get onto an airplane because it's more convenient, or the family that's traveling twice a year may go three times or four times. And, and um, that's where the pyramid gets wider at the bottom, uh, and that demand funnel helps the entire industry as, as, it, as it grows. Mm -hmm. 
So I'd like to talk broadly about um, the competitive landscape in the U.S. The, the big four have such a dominant market position, and there's a lot of calls in Washington now for more competition uh, um, after a wave of mergers. That competition has allowed airlines to be more profitable, but has also left many small airlines facing much, much larger competitors. So you've got about 5% of the, of the market, the seventh largest airline. What do you think is the best way to create more competition? Well, this is such a broad topic. I could probably go on for the remainder of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, we have been actively lobbying advocating, screaming from the hilltop. Um, for my entire 11 years here, and I know prior to it, Ben spent time and, and, and Barry and the prior management teams talking about this very topic. Competition, how do we drive more competition in the business? The big four airlines control 80% of the capacity in the United States. The remaining 20 is balkanized amongst the smaller uh, airlines. And it's very challenging for us to create uh, a more uniform competition approach to those bigger airlines. They use their scale, they use the power of their marketing programs, they use the real estate constraint that they've enjoyed over that period of time, all to control the capacity that can come in and out of their markets and the way they price that capacity. And so we've, we've for, uh, for a decade or more, been talking about what are the solutions to that? And one of them I heard the prior speaker talk about, which is uh, improvement in our air traffic control system, which would really actually drive considerable throughput into um, more congested airspace like the Northeast and uh, release slot control uh, constraints in, in constrained airports, which would uh, drive low-cost competition. And, and thus far, the government has not been willing to invest in that, which is quite frustrating, although we have been making that case uh, and have, haven't gotten anywhere with them on that yet. So instead, we've gone to them and said, well, we're seeing in, in legacy-dominated big city hub airports where real estate, which is owned by the municipality in a government asset has not been uh, as efficiently used. Spirit turns anywhere from eight to 10 flights on a gate per day. We are very efficient with our gate use. And what we find in these airports is the dominant airline is using them four times a day, yeah. or maybe three or four. And, and so if we could more efficiently allocate that resource, we could drive more flying into that and, and lower fares. And we haven't seen any action on that. So the best thing that we can do is get bigger which we can get scale, we can increase the power of our marketing programs, we can do all those things, and we've been doing that. Obviously, I'm, in my 11 years, we're five times the size that we were when I started, uh, but it's not happening fast enough, so we've proposed what we think is a very complimentary transaction, uh, and we're gonna take that to court, but we think we'll win because it does create a fifth challenger to the big four, it is a low-cost business, and I think that that's very much aligned uh, with the government's intent to get more competition in the business that a JetBlue Spirit combination would be a, a, a more realistic competitor to the big four? Well, we think for sure it creates a bigger competitor to the, to the big four. Um, so combined, we would be obviously the fifth largest airline. We'd be about 10% of the market, which is still half the size of the fourth airline. Right. But a way to, to offer our guests uh, more opportunities, which means we could drive more options, more lower fare options for, um, 
for these uh, legacy-dominated areas. If you look at the two networks, JetBlue is very, um, is, was founded in and is very well placed in the Northeast. Spirit has limited positions there, but we're larger than JetBlue in the Midwest and beyond. We're, we're bigger than them in places like Houston and Dallas and Atlanta and Chicago and Vegas. And so the networks actually work very well together to give people more options. Well, Ted, I think that's right. Going back to the guests for a minute, you know, people forget that people with a lot of money have that money in part because they're smart spenders. So it always surprised me when others were surprised that people with good incomes would fly a carrier like Spirit. Of course they would. That's why they were wealthy. They spend their money smart, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of stories around that. Warren Buffett talks about it all the time, the way he, he lives his life. Uh, so we welcome billionaires on board the airplane all the time. Of course, I don't know how many we get, but, but we're, you know, we're, we're willing to, uh, to serve them. And I think there is, it, it gets back to what I said before, when you're, when you're spending your own dollar, you do treat it a little bit differently than when you're spending the company's money, which we don't do at Spirit. And I'm looking at a few of my team members here. We don't do that. <laughs> you know, we, we, have a, we have an acronym at our office called Cilio, which is spend it like it's your own. Okay. And, the, and the, each dollar that we spend at Spirit, we treat like it's our own dollar. But I happen to know that there are people in certain organizations that tend to be a little bit looser with their spend when they're spending someone else's money. It's different <laughs> when you're spending your own. And, and so... I see suits on our airplane all the time. Um, I see people carrying briefcases all the time. So it definitely happens when people are traveling with, with their own intent. I, I think we just unveiled the new Spirit advertising campaign. Billionaires are welcome, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to gain a lot of traction. I mean, you know, no doubt. Well, Ted, President Biden recently called for compensating airline passengers for delays they cause beyond just refunds for canceled trips. What's your view on that? And importantly, why do you think airlines are singled out for this? Why don't they care if I wait two hours to see my doctor or if I call my cable company for service and they can't come for a week? Well, as to the first half, we're already financially incentivized, uh, dramatically so, to run an efficient on-time operation to get people where they want to go and to get them there as close to on-time as possible. That, that already exists. We have no incentive to do the other thing. And um, layering on some form of penalty will do nothing other than increase fares. So the airlines are already motivated to deliver their product in the best way possible. And the constraints that we face today, which are different than they were four or five years ago, are driving some of that delay. And a lot of that is not really in control of the airlines. We talked a lot about air traffic control earlier, but that is causing significant delay in our system. And of course, that is a government managed product. Uh, and whether or not those delays cascade and eventually cause crews to time out or airplanes to be in the wrong place shouldn't drive a penalty. Uh, to the airline business, in my opinion. And I think the incentive already exists. Uh, Spirit, for example, which is a standalone, low-cost airline, and getting back to my prior discussion about being small and, and it's difficult to compete, when we interrupt someone's travel and it's our fault, we're buying tickets on another airline to move people around. 
That's expensive, and it's not what we want to do. We certainly don't want our guests traveling on someone else. So for those reasons, we already have a natural incentive. Now, as to the second half of your statement, Ben, what is the motivation? Uh, well, airlines have always been in the public discourse. I think people like to talk about them. I think they drive a lot of intrigue. You and I were talking about this earlier. Um, we're, we get a lot of coverage. We get a lot of banking coverage. We get a lot of news coverage. All of that happens because everyone travels and everyone's familiar with airlines. And so it's easy fodder, in my opinion, for political motivation or whatever it might be to kind of pick on us. And um, I think it's unfair. Uh, the business has done a great job at delivering more lower fares over the last 15 years than it had in the prior 50. Uh, and that's through efficiency and, and delivering a good product. And we do so, by the way, and still, uh, unfortunately, for shareholders and investors, the margins are still relatively thin in our business compared to other industries. Um, and I think that should tell you a lot about how we're finding the right balance in delivering to our guests uh, and delivering financially. So um, all I could say on the topic is we're already doing the best uh, we can with the assets we have and, and layering on with additional penalties and fees is not gonna do anything other than, than drive up fares and, and reduce capacity. It's interesting with fares. Um, airfare is a, is a significant component of the consumer price index and the, uh, the run up in airfares has been part of the inflation issue. Although in March, um, there was a, a study done on uh, airfares using the consumer price information data. And if you adjust for inflation, airfares in March were 6% lower than they were 20 years ago. And I think, I think Spirit's been a, a large part of that, right? That's of, right. Of, yeah, of, yeah. That, that was what I was referencing. The data now, what I see some uh, reports saying is that fares are up dramatically. Well, they are off the bottom of the pandemic when right. it was basically free to travel. Um, but when you look at it, inflation adjusted over the last decade or more, air transportation is still cheaper than it was. Uh, and it's more reliable and more efficient. Um, and we're talking new equipment, and we're talking about bigger networks and giving people more choices. So, um, so yes, I mean, I think, I think the industry itself is doing the right things and trying to pursue the right balance in delivering quality good with low fares. Mm -hmm. So, Ted, we asked our airlines confidential listeners for questions um, to ask you, and, and I have one, and notice to the audience, um, we're going to be going to audience questions soon, so be thinking about what you'd like to ask Ted, um, but Dennis from Orange County, California wanted us to ask you that, uh, Dennis says, we, we know that it is not within Spirit's business model to have partnerships with any traditional airlines. However, have you considered becoming a, quote, light connecting partner to oversee ULCCs that fly to the US, such as Norse or Zip Air? Um, perhaps the partnership will not rise to the level of code sharing or check through bags, but it could include incentives such as offering travelers who hold a same-day ticket on those carriers a discount on Spirit's bag fees, as most of them likely have already paid bag fees, or offering some modest incentives such as bonus frequent flyer points for them to connect with Spirit. What do you think about partnerships? 
Sounds like this guy might have a, a job in mind or something he can get. Yeah, come. yeah. He's got it all laid out. Yeah. Um, uh, airlines confidential <laughs> listeners, the absolute best. Uh, so historically, and Ben will recall this from his tenure as well, the way we looked at code sharing or partnership relationships was a form of distribution of our product. And what has routinely been the case is we've been a relatively high load factor carrier. And Code-sharing relationships are just another way to sell your seats or distribute your seats through another airline or offer those, those opportunities. And so historically, we hadn't, need that, hadn't needed that. As the airline's gotten bigger and the network's got more interesting, uh, those ideas have come forth. We have been approached. And it's not to say that we would shut all doors at any given time, but I think we, have to, we would look at it the same way. Do we feel like there's an opportunity for us to either drive more traffic, which would en enhance revenue opportunity, um, by widening our distribution um, uh, opportunity? Now, code sharing, and, and I know the gentleman or, or lady on your, in your question was not necessarily specific to code share, but it can drive expense. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you need to take that into account. But I think, you know, Spirit is, is, is we do have an intent to get bigger. Uh, I think when our transaction with JetBlue is consummated, that's actually quite a large, low-cost airline that has already transatlantic opportunity uh, with it. And I think those opportunities, which some of which JetBlue pursued today, would get, would get bigger as well. So it's certainly on the consideration set, but nothing we've done as of yet. Very interesting. Well, Ted, while I hope we get some questions from the audience there, I can't let you go without reminding you and the audience about the big switch to the yellow planes. Do you want to tell that story? Uh, it's funny. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, for those of you in the audience and listening, when Ben was CEO, uh, we were going through a, a rebranding of the airline uh, and our prior design or our prior approach to the market and livery was much more traditional. We had a, uh, a largely white fuselage with a blue tail that had spirit on the side. Uh, and if you looked at the airport and you look today, it looks basically like every other airplane. Most airplanes have a, a white fuselage with a blue tail and some design and, and the name of the airline on it. And, um, and our marketing team and, and all of us in senior leadership decided it was time for a refresh and something that we could approach the market a little bit more differently. So Bobby Schroeder, who still today is our chief marketing officer, came up with a few design ideas along with, uh, with our marketing partner and actually painted them into little Pac-Man models. So we had three ideas that we were, I still remember the day we were in Ben's office and he had them covered with a, uh, you know, a sheet. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yank this this sheet off, and I want everyone to point at the airplane that we think we should use. And we had had prior discussions about color, and we knew yellow was the right color because it, it brings forth um, feelings of happiness and sun, and th those are the reasons that we, that we picked it. And, uh, and as Ben said, I came from the finance organization, and I tend to be a much more conservative guy. So just let me outline that way. So anyways, the three models are there. And they, they yanked the sheet off, and it was myself and Ben uh, and, and Bobby and Thomas Canfield, our general counsel. And I can't remember if Barry was in the room at the time not, or not, Ben. And anyways, we were all supposed to point right away. And all of them pointed at what is now the spirit livery, which is yellow with a big black spirit on the side of it. And, 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 and I, pointed, <laughs> I pointed at one that was white with a yellow tail. And I lost... 
Uh, and it ended up being the best decision we've made because all of you now recognize when you think of spirit, you think of a big yellow airplane. And everyone talks about it in both positive and interesting ways. Um, and we get a lot of discussion at it. And when you're at the airport, you can't miss it. Um, it absolutely, in fact, when we presented it to our board after we made the decision, we had a picture of a tarmac with a bunch of tails sticking out, and they were all white fuselages with blue uh, logos. And then we superimposed a yellow airplane coming across, and, and it, it was a great image, but uh, it's worked out very well, and it was actually quite funny that, that it landed the way it did. And I still have that model in my desk, by the way. <laughs> One of a kind. <laughs> so so I, I know... Uh, Ben's dying to know. So spirit executives famously in Ben's tenure emptied their own trash cans as a way to save money. Uh, do you, Ted, still empty your own trash can? We did, and we also vacuumed our own office, which, <laughs> which is a true statement, by the way. Um, but no, Ben, I don't take out my trash today. There is somebody that takes the trash, which is, which is nice. <laughs> and spirit has matured. <laughs> I guess. All right. Ted audience, gets a slippery slope toward being a legacy. <laughs> slippery slope. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Great. We have a question over here. Hi, Ted. Dennis Crosby with Pros. I've got a question. So yesterday, and I live in Dallas, uh, DFW just announced a multi-billion dollar project with the new terminal, more gates, and that's great. But the first thing that comes to my mind is, with all these airport terminal expansions, it seems to me like without expanding runways and adding more capacity there, that we're going to have a much bigger problem with congestion, especially with weather delays and things like that. And just wanted to get your thoughts on this. And I know you guys are growing in Dallas, but it's not just specifically Dallas, but all of these airports that are doing terminal expansions. What's your thoughts on the need for more runways, more infrastructure in that regard? Well, at least in, in, in Dallas, for sure, runways are not going to be a problem. So you got plenty of space there. Um, and we've been, uh, we've been pushing the airport for a long time to put more gate space in. Um, believe it or not, we are the second largest airline at DFW Airport, but I think the scale is kind of off because you have... You have American here and we're somewhere down here. But we've been saying for a long time that we want to get larger in Dallas. And the constraint isn't necessarily the, um, the, the runway or, or airspace infrastructure. Good news at Dallas Airport is because it is in the middle of nowhere and, and still has plenty of room. But it has been gate issues. And so um, I would have loved to have been a part of that, organ of that announcement because I wish they, that they, we were the ones. Uh, but you could see that American was at that announcement, which um, is a little bit frustrating. But I think we'll, we'll figure out a way to get you know, our spot uh, in there as well and continue to be able to grow at Dallas. There are other airports where um, the airspace I mentioned earlier is still still an issue, uh, clearly in the Northeast, um, where, where we think NextGen will improve that considerably. And we do have some that are that are runway limited. In fact, our hometown airport just, just north of us here at Fort Lauderdale Airport, um, they did complete uh, construction about 10 years ago on a second runway there that, that increased throughput considerably, but we will eventually reach the cap there as well. Uh, and so there, those do exist, but those big hub airports like Dallas and Houston uh, and Chicago and, and Atlanta have, have more room if we can find the gate. Good. Other questions? Hey, yeah. um, Mike Arnott here for, uh, for you, uh, Ted. Ben was, uh, it was recently announced, has been nominated for the ATW Joseph S. Murphy Award for Service to Industry, which is an award that's pretty rarely given out. So 
um, I'd like to ask what lessons did you learn from Ben, both about the airline industry or perhaps about leading people um, that prepared you to be the CEO of Spirit? I had no idea, Ben. Congratulations. That is fantastic um, and well-deserved for uh, Ben has dedicated his entire career to this industry. And, um, and it's, it's something that's, that's well-deserved. And what he's done is do it exactly the way he looks here on the monitor with a smile on his face and with good humor, which is, which is one, of the, one of the tenements of his career. So I mentioned that I had just three and a half years to work to overlap with Ben, but it did feel longer in a good way. And I've had the, the distinct pleasure really to work for four airline CEOs in my career. And each one of them have had a dramatic impact on my life um, and the way that I think about things. And Ben is such a very smart and engaging person. Uh, that he translates very complex ideas into a discussion that people can actually relate to and translate into business concepts. Um, and those of us who know Ben well know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you can get lost in eggheadery if you are a, um, you know, uh, an Ivy League educated economist. But Ben doesn't do that. And being able to distill those ideas down to an actionable cause is, is something that I took away from Ben. And I mentioned earlier that uh, it's important to me and I think it's important to the team members at Spirit that we enjoy ourselves at work and that there was no doubt that every day we were gonna laugh uh, when Ben was my CEO. And I've done my best to keep that as well. And that keeps people motivated and engaged and, and having a good time. So, you know, being smart, being thoughtful, but being relatable are the things that I took away from my, my experience with Ben. Congratulations, Ben. Terrific. Another question? Yeah. Good morning, Ted, and good morning, Scott. Uh, Rene Arma from Metro Aviation. Talking about air traffic management and flow management, uh, do you believe that uh, the next frontier perhaps might be a closer collaboration between ANSPs, airlines, and airport in order to reduce costs and optimize, you know, minimize operational disruptions? It seems to be, obviously there is technology around this that it can be used, but it seems to be there is a data accuracy is needed, more demand and arrival predictability is needed as well. Obviously there is some flows on the ground that needs to be managed as well, but if you are trying to optimize your CASAM and based on the discussion that potentially the government is, is planning to do what they are doing in Europe, you know, penalizing airlines if you are delayed or not. I mean, you can do your best on your own, but obviously the a ANSP the, has a big role to play as well as airport. Do you think there is a way this can be improved, optimized, and how do you see that working for the whole infrastructure and the system? I absolutely do. Um, I think uh, Europe or even Canada as a model, we, we've, we've watched what's happened and that's why I say I'm a bit frustrated that the U.S., which is, you know, the largest airspace market in the world, has now become a bit of a laggard when it comes to technology in the management of the airspace. Um, and, you know, we still have air traffic controllers passing paper here, which is not efficient. Uh, and so by introducing more data and more technology into that process, and you mentioned collaboration as an idea, too, I would... You know, there, there, there's a public-private discussion about whether or not that would solve the issue. Um, I'm no expert on any of those particular ideas, but I happen to know that for um, a society that is interested in a couple of things, uh, increased competition, which, you know, lower airfares driven by that, and an improvement in the environmental footprint 
on transportation as well. All of those are perfectly aligned with an improvement in um, airspace management and air traffic control. Uh, the data is pretty astounding, in fact, when you look at what could happen with a more uh, efficient delivery into more congested airspaces. I've seen numbers driving six, seven, eight percent fuel burn reductions just because the flows are more efficient, the routings are more efficient, the timing is going to be more efficient, it's going to drive more use of the slot uh, and better use of the, the fixed facility, all that driving fares lower. I think we all agree that those are the right things to invest in. We just can't seem to get the government to actually rip off the Band-Aid and move ahead. And maybe that will require a, a public-private partnership to get it done. All right. Very good. I want to uh, take a moment to thank our sponsors for making this possible. For Airlines Confidential, Pratt & Whitney, our annual sponsor, Hop, and Oliver Wyman for supporting our appearance today. Um, and most of all, I want to thank you, Ted. Uh, this has been a terrific discussion. I think we've all learned a lot, and it's been a thrill to be here with you. Appreciate it very much. And also to you, Ben, thanks for joining us remotely, and we look forward to doing it again in person. Well, thanks. I wish I could be with all of you, but really appreciate the great questions. And Ted, this was terrific. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for running the great airline you're running. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Ted Christie for joining us at Aviation Festival Americas and for the great conversation. Even though I was only on a big screen, it was great to talk to Ted in this way again. Ben, we had one listener come by our booth at the convention and offer up a question he wanted us to address. So here goes, an in-person listener question. Brian from New York wants to know why there are no luxury high-end startups. They've all been low cost. JetSuite X might be the exception, maybe, but why wouldn't something nicer work? Well, I don't know the perfect answer to this, Scott, but it's not like it hasn't been tried, right? There have been airlines out of Love Field, out of New York, and other places that have tried to be all luxury, and they have always failed simply because all your costs are 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, but the revenue from luxury passengers isn't quite that broad. So while those airlines maybe make money on some days and some times of year, they've never been able to put together a fully profitable year. Do you have a better thought, Scott? No, I think that's right. Brian and I talked about it when, when he wanted to ask the question. To me, the ones that have tried in the past have largely focused on the big markets, right? You really need to be New York to LA, uh, that kind of thing, where you're going to have high-yield customers. Um, but if you try and do it with an airplane that by definition is high cost because you have so few seats on the airplane, it's really tough to compete with the big airlines, which for that high-yield customer can now offer lie-flat beds in front 
And they subsidize that with all the coach seats in the back of the airplane. So it's really not a fair competition, right? And certainly the people who live in New York and go to LA and want a luxury airline, they go other places too. So loyalty gets into it. For a startup airline to be all luxury or high cost, they don't have feed from other cities. They don't have low costs. And they really have a competitive disadvantage because those airplanes just aren't going to be economical compared to big airplanes that other airlines can put into those markets. Um, so I think for all those reasons, uh, it makes a whole lot more sense for an airline to start up as a low-cost carrier, and then you do have a competitive advantage over older competitors, more established competitors, and maybe you can make a go of that. Well, another thing I'd remind Brian is that United, American, and Delta all have very big economy cabins, and there's a reason they do. Yes. And also, I'll add, Brian, we really appreciate you asking this question, but I have some friends who used to work at EOS Airlines, which were an all-business-class airline operating between New York and London. And they said that customers told them their product was better than American, British Airways, or Virgin, or Delta, that they liked their service better. But what the EOS people said is what they could not compete with is exactly what you said, Scott, locked in corporate deals, frequent fire programs, things like that is yeah. what killed them, not that the product itself wasn't nice. Right. And dependability can be an issue, too, because they're not going to have spare airplanes sitting around. They don't have a large fleet to swap when something breaks. Um, so it, when you're talking about a luxury customer that expects dependability and service, that's different from uh, maybe a, a low fare customer um, that knows that uh, the service is going to be infrequent. Well, that's right. And that's also all we got this week for Airlines Confidential. Thanks again to Ted Christie. We hope you all enjoyed that. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.